Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join DJ, impresario and entrepreneur Andrew Bull for the next two programmes, looking back at the past 50 years of a life in music, starting as a DJ at his high school. Andrew Bull was the son of a vicar who came to Hong Kong for a two-year stint as army chaplain. They were based in Sekong. When his parents returned to the UK, Andrew stayed working at Radio Hong Kong and Commercial Radio, later DJing at the scene and other clubs before setting up his own. He brought big acts to Hong Kong, including Kylie Minogue, Diana Ross and Peter Ustinov. This week, we talk about his childhood and first years in Hong Kong. It's my 50th year on the decks, which I had not actually realised until somebody on a Facebook uh, in my old the school I used to go to when I used to start DJing in the 70s late 60s I went to a place called the Royal Russell School in Croydon I went to this school and I did the Valentine's dance in 1970 and somebody had a photo in a shoebox for years and put it on Facebook and then my brain joined the dots and said oh 1970 that is Valentine's Day 1970 there's a picture of me DJing so I, I can now say 50 years on the decks. Uh, yeah, 1956, I was born in Tidworth Military Hospital because my father was a medical orderly during the Suez Crisis. And I was conceived on a rooftop in Benghazi and flown back to England to be born. Because uh, I've got some fantastic photos of my parents lounging on their biblical-looking Benghazi rooftop in sandals. You know, so far, I don't think the uh, Suez Crisis was bad news for them <laughs> at all. And it certainly produced me. <laughs> Were both yeah. of your parents military? Well, no. My father was uh, was doing national service. Ah. I suppose he was he was only nineteen. And my mother was his girlfriend or his wife by that time. Yeah. Later, when you come to Hong Kong, I understood that your dad was part of the British Army. Oh yes. So my dad was a committed Christian. And he sought to take the cloth, as it were, and he, he went to uh, something called London Bible College as a student. So after the Suez Crisis, which as far as I know, we lost, but he, he, he didn't carry any guilt in that regard. He became a student and his parents, uh, my paternal grandparents, lived in a place called Flittick in Bedfordshire. And uh, they, they had a wonderful little house there where my brother and sister were born. And I grew up a Bedfordshire lad for two or three years until he graduated. Then somewhere towards the 1963 mark, he became a vicar. Uh, he was ordained in York Minster and we all moved to York. And that was his first job as what they call a curate. For him, was that so, something that he'd always intended yeah. to do or was that a later calling? He was a man of the of the spirit from day one. There's no doubt. He was a very excellent gentleman, my father, the Reverend Ian Henry Bull, chaplain to the forces. He wanted his family to see the world, so he joined the army as like an army chaplain. Luckily, it was not wartime, so he would mainly perform sort of pastoral duties and uh, 
general ministering to the troops rather than last rites on the battlefield, that sort of thing. So from York, you know, he joins the British Mm. Army. Yes. And then, uh, you know, we went to see the world. Basically, he was posted to Germany originally. So we got on a plane at Leeds and Bradford Airport and flew to a place called Bielefeld in Germany. And he he had his own plane, like, uh, and he would go off to various parts of Westphalia in this otter plane, which would take off quite near our house. And uh, so it was it was amazing, uh, an amazing existence. After that, we got sent to British Guiana, which was the most magical experience when you're like eight or nine years old. I had to take my brother to South America three times a year, the West Indies. Oh, wow. And uh, the BOAC Junior Jet Club 707 used to stop in seven places before we got to Atkinson Field in British Guiana. It was Guadeloupe. It was I think we stopped in Bermuda, Barbados, Antigua, Trinidad. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was me and my brother. We were at boarding school in Yorkshire. And and we were unaccompanied minors. We would walk out of the school in Ripon near Harrogate, take the bus by ourselves to Harrogate, get on a train to York, and then go from York to London. And then our grandparents would meet us in London and take us to Victoria, the sort of... uh, downtown check-in to be handed over to the junior jet club people. So we, we used to do that three times a year. So you were in uh, boarding school and then what, you would go to British Guiana for holidays? Yeah. Well, then it stopped being British Guiana because they got independence, which I think was one of the reasons we might have been over there. And they became Guyana. My father was down there with the British Army, uh, which, was, uh, which we found out later they were all engaged in black ops trying to make sure that one of the political parties other than the other won the election after they got independence. Well, I think the whole thing failed and the wrong guy became the uh, prime minister. His name was Forbes Burnham and he, he took Guyana into a Marxist direction. Interesting time. So when was that? 1966, so 1965, 66. So what, you're about nine or ten then, yeah. Yeah, I was about nine. We lived on a sugar plant, you know, a sugar cane plantation, and it was the most magical thing because it was quite, it was like living on the peak in in Guyana. You know, we had a a wonderful white house uh, with on legs, and we would be allowed to stand at the window and watch the bats escape from our roof at a certain time of night, and then after that, we would have to go to bed, uh, sleep under a, a mosquito net with the windows open and next door there was wonderful West Indian families listening to steel band music and dancing. On particular Friday night they would have like something called a jump up which is like a Hawaiian luau. They would just put on coloured shirts and listen to their music. A lot of calypso in those days and this, I, I never actually could see them but when I was in bed I could hear them making this happy noise and that effect, that affected me and I, and, and, and it stayed with me that I, want, I would always like to be responsible for making that noise or be in a place where that noise was emanating from About 1971 my father was posted to Hong Kong for two years and so you're, what, 15? 14, probably 14, something like that. Do you remember what yeah, your maybe. first impression of Hong Kong was and how um, you came in? Uh, the smell as you came in the, e- in the early evening and you drove through 
a Tokwa one that smelled like amazing sort of, it smelled like uh, people cooking, for, uh, making omelets. <laughs> the, the sort of aroma of sort of Daipai Dong food, sort of odd honking noises and a, a strange vibe. It made an immediate impression. But my parents lived in the New Territories in Sekong, sort of like a hill station uh, on in the foothills of Tai Mo Shan. We lived in a garden-fringed mini-villa out there. Still there. And uh, we, we had the most amazing life as an army family. Your father would be, yeah. what, conducting services or...? Oh yes, he was the he was the he was the chaplain at St Martin's Church, Sekong, and he was responsible for the 48th Gurkha Infantry Brigade. It was a Gurkha regiment most of the time. I do think we had the 14th, 20th King's Hussars at one point, which was a very prestigious regiment. We had a wonderful officers' mess where you had a Gurkha steel band playing in the garden on Sundays, because when you're a, when you're a padre. You get the rank of an officer, you know, so you get to be you get to the officer's mess. So if your dad has the rank of major or something like that, even though he's the vicar, you're in the officer's mess, no sweat. <laughs> the situation in Sekong was they had the Gurkha regiment there and uh, they had something called BFBS, which was British Forces Broadcasting Service. And it was only on the air three hours a day from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And it was only in Nepalese. It was an AM station and it broadcast from the army camp in Sekong. And my father knew a guy called John Campbell, who was the guy who ran this little BFBS outfit in a Nissan hut at the back of Sekong camp near the airstrip. So he knew I was DJ inclined. So he hooked me up as an intern. And I was able to hang out at the BFBS. I was doing all kinds of odd jobs and learning a lot of broadcasting stuff. But every evening for the broadcast from 7 to 10 p.m., there would be a sort of concrete bunker with a transmitter in it in a paddy field somewhere in Sekong. And there was no air conditioning. And the transmitter used to overheat all the time. So someone had to sit on one of those Chinese folding chairs and then uh, throw the switch on the transmitter every time it tripped because it was overheating. So that was my job. So I would sit three hours a night and throw the trip switch on the transmitter while listening to Hindi film tunes wafting through the uh, mosquito-laden air. Tell me a little bit about your aspirations. Yeah. You'd always loved music. What were your yeah. early influences, that sort of thing? Well, when you were a sort of expat army brat or whatever, or especially at boarding school, at that era, you're listening to Radio Luxembourg with an earpiece. You're not allowed to have a radio, but you've got one. And you sneak it under your pillow and hope that teacher doesn't come into the dorm just when you're getting into, you know, Tony Prince, ruler on 208 from the Grand Duchy. Radio Luxembourg, Tony Prince. Can you dig it? It's eight minutes after 11 on Radio Luxembourg. Stand by for my favorite record out of tonight's top 30 in just a moment. And now, of course, my favorite record from tonight's top 30. See whether you agree. I think it's terrific. If you're a rock fan, you'll dig it. Sound number 27, Ram Jam and Black Betty. <laughs> Ram 
checking out the latest track from Traffic or, uh, you know, you're listening to the latest Ossibisa album. The music was definitely speaking to me when I was at boarding school. And I, I used to DJ there and I, and I liked, I mean, radio was very important. So I thought that my career could be in radio broadcasting, DJ, something like that. I didn't really think about playing to a live audience. It was just, I, w I wanted to be the guy on the radio. When mm. you're listening, of course, I mean, by the time I'm listening, I could then record, you know, on cassette and everything. But presumably you just listened at that stage. I mean, in the, so what are we talking there? That's um, well, no, late I, 60s. No, yeah. I, was, I was quite good at, I was, I was a pretty nifty shoplifter. Uh, there was a record shop in Croydon where the security was particularly lax. We, you know, we, we had a record player in the common room and uh, mu we, every, everyone had music. Everyone, I mean, Virgin had just started up. You could order albums, mail order. It was, you know, it was an intense time. What was the first record that you shoplifted? Uh, well, I only, I actually only simply, I shop, shoplifted one cassette. Uh, it was John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. Oh, that's a great choice. Can't remember the name of the album. That's a great choice to steal. <laughs> Kudos. It was my final attempt at, uh, at, yeah, I just couldn't handle being a bad lad, you know. It's not in my bones, especially with my dad being a vicar. I didn't want to be called in by the bishop. Now, in terms of coming to Hong Kong, when you when you arrive here, so what was the idea? So your parents yeah. took you out of school in order to come to Hong Kong or? No, no, no. I mean, we were at boarding school. We used to, you know, we, were, we would go to uh, RAF Bryce Norton and fly to Hong Kong via Cyprus and Gan, sitting backwards. Yeah. When you first come here, you're, you're getting yeah. involved in BFBS. Then you just said to your parents, I'm staying. There's a bit in between to that. But basically, because my dad was, he was do, like, when you're a, a vicar in Hong Kong, you used to get scheduled, like every morning on Radio Hong Kong, there'd be like, Bible five minutes between like in uh, between uh, 6.55 a.m. and 7 a.m. They'd be thought for the day. So they would have a roster of vicars of, or Roman Catholic fathers who would come in and record your five minutes. So I used to go into Radio Hong Kong when my father was doing his bit, start schmoozing. A accidentally on purpose, uh, running into the director of broadcasting in the lobby, that sort of thing, you know, the schmooze. Well, Ralph Pixton down in the bar, how are you, Ralph? You know, love your show. That sort of thing. Tell me about Ralph. <laughs> he had uh, his own bar stool. Another, another man who uh, wore exclusively safari suits. The, the RTHK bar was absolutely amazing in those days because you have two kinds of broadcasters. There are people who get into character when they're broadcasting and then have a normal voice. Although there's some people who can't stop talking in the radio voice. <laughs> the most uh, amazing example of that was a guy called Tony Orchez, legendary DJ. He had incredible music taste, but I think he was Japanese Hawaiian, something like that. Amazing guy. But he, he called himself uh, Tony Orchez, which was not his real name. But he, he had this sort of suave Latino style. He was known as the Johnny Mathis of Hong Kong, and he used to sing at the Polaris in the Hyatt Regency. But when he came to the bar after doing his show, he would do like a drive time, something like that, and uh, play this incredible like Michael Franks or slow tunes by Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, very soulfully done. But, but he had this one. So, 
I'm Tony Orchez, you know, I'm doing my show now, you know, and all my friends and colleagues in Hong Kong, uh, I'd like to send you this song. But then he actually spoke like that in real life. If you met him in the bar, I said, Andrew, would you like to have a Saturday girl at this time? Yeah, there was uh, the bar, the bar manager was Mr. Wong, and he made very good cheeseburgers. So if, 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 I mean, most of the time you ate in the canteen and ate sort of egg sandwiches. If you, if you just come into some money, you go down there and get one of Mr. Wong's cheeseburgers. There's amazing characters there. Hal Archer, who was, on, he was on commercial radio. He wasn't on Radio Hong Kong because you get, because there was a lot of characters worked at commercial radio because it was the dodgier station. But you, the bar <laughs> was populated by some great characters. Commercial radio delivered a, a large number of amazing people. Now, were you just new, doing news or were you doing music with well, Radio I, Hong I, Kong? I was about 17. And, and so basically we lived in Sekong, which is near somewhere called Pat Herm in the New Territories, where they have the fire services training center. And for some reason, my father was officiating at some uh, function. And, and Mr. Hawthorne, who was the... Uh, I think it was Jimmy Hawthorne, his name, James Hawthorne. He was the director of broadcasting, and he was an official or dignitary at this event. And my father put me forward to him and said, look, you know, any chance of a voice test for this lot? You know, he's, he wants to be a DJ. The guy was very gracious, and I, I had a voice test in Radio Hong Kong. And there was a guy called Ken Scott, and he did this continuity announcing voice test for me. And they said, thank you very much. We'll call you back. And they said, well, we don't have any jobs as DJs going, but we're looking for a cub reporter to be a dog's body in the newsroom. You fancy that? So I bit their hand off and said, I'll have it. So I came to work for a, an amazing guy called Warren Rook, who was the uh, head of news. And that's how I started on my uh, there was a program in the morning, a bit like Hong Kong today, it's called Topics, which was just like, you know, anything going on. So I, I went into that and I was, it was that, that's what started me on the road. So I, I had to become a news reporter in order to get close to the music. Tell me about your first stories. Do you remember what sort of things you were covering? Well, I, the, the first thing they did was actually base me at the airport. I used to sit at the airport and... VIP arrivals were a big news event, and there was like a VIP lady. So when such and such a dignitary would arrive from England, you'd cover it. So I was at the airport, sort of, it was like so-and-so arrived in Hong Kong today, <laughs> you know, because it was a big thing. I would also get the short straw when it came to typhoons, and the station had a, a Land Rover with a radio phone in it, and I'd be down at the Star Ferry, you know, in the Southwester. Looks like the Star Ferry has been suspended. <laughs> How did you do that, though? Did you yeah. have to record it and then bring it back, or did you say it over the phone? Or well, you might you, you might you take your tape recorder with you. I mean, the the Land Rover had a radio phone in it, so if it was like of critical importance, you'd use the phone. Like I think I used the phone when Godber was being arrested in the ICAC. I was I was on that one. I, I but usually you would do a bit of a vox pop. You'd uh, like uh, you like for example if uh, if uh, if someone had been crushed by heavy equipment in a, in, a, in a construction site you would then speak to the fire chief say well what's the situation here officer you know and then you'd get a few words Godber was one of my stories but my my most amazing assignment was to cover Bruce Lee's funeral for Radio Hong Kong I don't know if there's a tape of that in the archives first of all as another amazing 
fact in my life, probably one of the most amazing facts, is that the first dead person I ever saw was Bruce Lee. Because it was an open casket, and I was only 17 or something, and I'd never seen a dead body before. So the first dead person I ever saw was Bruce Lee. What did he look like? Pretty much Bruce Lee, because he didn't die of a horrendous injury or anything. He looked normal. Just like asleep, because I knew I knew him when he was alive. I mean, because I used to work at Golden Harvest Studios for Andre Morgan, who uh, produced all of the Bruce Lee movies. Uh, I used to work as a synopsis writer in in my spare time. Because when you went to the movies in those days, they'd give you a piece of paper sponsored by Seven Up in in purple ink, which gave you the synopsis of the movie in English and Chinese. And I wrote the one in English, so I, I'd seen him uh, around the lot at Golden Harvest. But there he was. So the funeral was incredible. Open casket, people going around, huge crowds, not, you know, Chinese sort of oboe funeral music. Yeah, so where did it take place? In Mong Kok, some kind of uh, Mong Kok uh, funeral parlour. So in terms of who was there? And then, well, I mean, I mean, all his family, I mean, the who's who of Hong Kong entertainment, you know, all of the superstars of the day and obviously the the boss of Golden Harvest, Raymond Chow, leading the mourners. And it was such an epic moment for Hong Kong. The swirling crowd, you could see that they, it was like uh, Bob Marley or Elvis had died. It was like, or, or Princess Diana. There was outpourings of grief from the Chinese population of Hong Kong on an epic scale. So that was 1973. So you're you're there reporting on that for radio. Yeah. So in that case, I would I would record stuff there, a bit like a commentary with the the sound of the morning music in the background. And, but at the same time, I would, I would I would phone in to the sub editor, and he would uh, you know I don't know what so I would say so and so was there, such and such happened, and then the sub editor would put it in the, in the, in the hourly bulletin, and I would bring something back for the six o'clock. So how long was the funeral? Oh, that was uh, <clears throat> most of that afternoon. But then what was amazing was I was also assigned to his inquest, because they had an inquest at Chun Wan Magistrate's Court, which lasted three weeks. So I sat in the court for three weeks while his cause of death was deliberated. And so every day, in time for the one o'clock news, I would call in and say, well, today's deliberations were largely in the area of his excessive smoking of hashish, or, what, or what, you know, whatever the most sensational element of the, the day's deliberations were. Did he smoke hash? Yeah, he was one of the greatest hash smokers of all time. And basically, he pushed himself physically. He was in his early 30s or something. But he pushed himself physically very hard. And he took some kind of analgesic medicine. And it clashed with the amount of hashish in his system or something. But, I mean, nobody really knows what happened. He just, like, said, his body just said, that's it. But the official, do you remember what the official verdict was? Death by misadventure. What exactly? Nobody knows. His children, Brandon and Shannon, and his wife, Linda, they came to the Chinwan Magistrates Court, immaculately dressed, every morning for three weeks, 
and I got to know them on a sort of nodding basis. And I just sat there, and it was an amazing thing to have attended every second of Bruce Lee's inquest. When you used to see him on the lot at Golden Harvest, can you describe a bit of that and what the, what the lot actually looked like and where it was? Out in uh, Diamond Hill somewhere. That- and it was the, it was the Golden Harvest. They, they had, like, low-rise buildings, and they did all of the... I don't know if they shot anything out there. They might have done, but it's where they did all. They had all the sound stages. They did all the dubbing. So all of the the guys from the bar at Art, at Radio Hong Kong did all the dubbing of the movies. So if, if ever you went to a cheap hotel in America and they were playing Chinese kung fu movies overnight while the TV station was off, all of the voices would be the same guys from Hong Kong. Master, why did you kill me? No, things like that. <laughs> Barry Haig was the most amazing dubber, you know, put on the fake American accents. He was a very George Lazenby type character, you know, you must not strike me in this way. It shows your disrespect. My father became a DJ at Radio Hong Kong before me. He had a weekly show. It was called The Jesus Program. And he would play like Christian rock hits of the moment because he would have like, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar or Godspell or uh, Christian rock tracks du jour. And my father would, like, DJ this show, you know, to appeal appeal to the younger generation. What years were your parents here? 71 to 74. So did he meet Cliff Richard? Yeah, we we, we were at the show at the Lee Theatre. Cliff and me are buddies. I brought Cliff to Hong Kong a couple of years ago. Uh, with with Uncle Ray's kind assistance, you know, I whispered in his ear. I said, "Can you up the Cliff Richard number of tracks per night?" <laughs> you know, I think we can do business to. <laughs> <laughs> what was interesting is when I did manage to slime my way from <laughs> needing to music, Ray Kadiro became my boss because he was the head of light music. And what did you start off with on the music side? He asked me to do a heavy rock show. It was called Hardcore, 45 minutes a week. And uh, I don't even know if I have a recording of of any one of those shows, but it was uh, 45 minutes a week of sort of like uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, anything on the sort of progressive rock tip, slightly bluesy. So Ray Ray actually asked you to fill that niche or that just happened to be the kind of music you liked? I think he was the one that suggested it originally because I looked very rock and roll in those days. What did your dad think about you becoming a DJ? He was very proud. And when their tour of duty came to an end in Hong Kong, I said to him, look, Dad, you know what I'm saying? I I think uh, since I've got all this good stuff going on in Hong Kong, I think I might just stay here. And he he gave me an air ticket on Upo Air back to London, you know, he says, if you run out of money, just use the air ticket. The air ticket they gave you? What was the airline? Well, it was Upo, which was what, like, uh, it was British Airways, but Upo Air was always a a charter company organised by the the Chinese community in England, the sort of uh, Chinese takeaway community, Chinatown. They had these... The back of the plane was always the, the worst seats. It was Upo Air, the cheapest ones. 
My thanks to Andrew Bull talking there on his first years in radio and music. Next week, we'll be talking about the disco scene in Hong Kong and his more recent entertainment work on the mainland where he's based in Shanghai. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.